Turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Children are dismissed to children's church, or for sure. So this morning, uh, Nehemiah brings us to an interesting place, for sure. Uh, when you, as, as a pastor, as a preacher or teacher, um, when you prepare or start thinking about, well, what book are we going to work through next? Um, I certainly read through the book. But what you, do not, what you don't do is you don't focus on uh, tough passages in the book. You just, you're prayerful and you seek the Lord and you say, okay, Lord, I think that's what you would have us to do. I think this is best for uh, the souls of the folks and what we can learn. So let's, let's, that's what we're going to preach. And then you really start studying your way through the book and you realize there's a chapter 7 of Nehemiah, which is essentially 70-some verses of names and numbers. And these are not like names like Mary, John, Bob, Steve. These, these are some uh, incredibly difficult to pronounce. So I did toy inwardly with the idea of making Darren read all of those um, during scripture reading time. And waiting till the last minute, till this morning, to text him, hey, here's the, wor- the verses, which is not uncommon that I wait when he reads passages that I wait till the last minute. But um, did not f- find that to be, I, was, I would have been amused, but um, helpful. And then you get to chapter 11, and chapter 11 is almost exclusively another lengthy list. Now, I just want to help us understand this morning, I'm not going to read both those chapters. And that's normal practice as I read um, the passage, as you know, as all of you know, uh, and then we work our way through it. And so we are going to approach it a little bit of a different way. Um, Every passage of Scripture has immense value, but the way they have value can certainly be different. And... This is one of those moments. So um, you're not going to derive uh, this depth. There's not some hidden message in the numbers. Um, there, there's, there's, it's not an anagram where the first letter of every word means something. Uh, you can get out your Strong's Concordance and look up the meaning of the names and say, oh, well, maybe there's... Nope. Th- that's not their purpose. That's not why these are here. And so it's, it's really my job... Uh, as a as a preacher teacher um, to help us to understand the word to give you the word and help you understand it and so part of that is to help you understand then why do we have these passages here like this um, I, I'll give you an example my our family um, we had started on a kind of like a Lenten kind of devotional leading up to Easter um, and we ended up saying you know, this isn't working for us and what it was was it just went straight through first and second chronicles well, like First Chronicles, like the first 10 chapters is nothing but like these kinds of just lists of names. So we're trying to do our family worship time in the evening, and it's basically sit there, turn on the audio Bible, and listen to like 35 Hebrew names in a row read, son, son of so-and-so. Son. They have importance and worth because they're showing uh, how you ha- can track the lineage. And so they're important in that way. They don't have the same kind of depth of understanding and comprehension that you're going to derive, for example, from preaching through or studying through an epistle or uh, through a gospel story. And so this will be an abnormal sermon this morning. Um, And all of that to say, see, he's just terrified of reading all those names. Sure, you want to put it up there? I'm okay with that also. They they are brutal. But this is a critical moment here in Nehemiah. And as as I referenced last week, you really see a turning of the corner. It's kind of a new um, moment in Nehemiah. The walls are built, what's left? And what's left in many ways is far more important 
than the actual construction, the physical construction of the walls. That's not to demean that. It's all, it's all part of it. But, but it's almost more important. Um, I think maybe a way to help us to understand it is, even as Darren read this morning from the, the Tower of Babel story, is there's really a brokenness that happens. And I've referenced this art form before that you see there in the top right, Kintsuge, from, it's a Japanese art form, where they take a shattered piece of pottery and they put it back together and they literally weld it together with gold. Um, a couple years ago, uh, I bought my wife a, a Kintsuge pot that, that sits on her bedside table. Um, just in coming through a season, particularly for her, of her cancer journey and just seeing the brokenness of life and, and really... When God puts broke things together, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's a glorious thing. Well, um, if you buy a original Kintsuge uh, piece of work from Japan, you're not paying under um, thousands of dollars. That's, that's just, it's just not happening. It is so rare and sought after. And so, well, you know, so how did Steve afford one? I now have one kidney. No, that's, that's not true. Um, there's not a black market sale that went on. Um, people make them now. And so they'll take a pot and break it in a very careful way. And then they redo it that way. And so that's far less expensive, obviously, a modern day Kintsuge piece. But and so it gives us an affordable way to appreciate the art form and the beauty of it. And I think there's things in our lives that, that over time, it can be hard to appreciate the beauty. Um, when I had a season of life where I spent a lot of time uh, working with college-age students and investing in them. And there was one particular moment that would frequently come up in a guy's life, uh, and it was that moment when he would be going to a girl's parents and asking for their permission or their, their approval to marry their daughter. And uh, without fail, I mean, we're talking probably 99% of the time, one of the questions that a parents will ask, a mother, father, or both of them, depending on the scenario, will ask is, well, what is it about my daughter that you love? And that's a critical mass moment for a guy, because if we're honest, it's because when we look at her, she makes our heart go hubba hubba. But nobody wants to tell a dad that, because it feels like a shotgun's coming out and you better run the other way. And so I would tell guys that I would, I, would, I would tell them, look, this is how you handle that moment. Look at him and say, well, let's just cut to the chase. She's gorgeous. Now, here's all the other things. And I said, because the dad is a guy too. And if you look at him and say, well, man, her personality is just a winner. He knows that. He also knows you're lying to him. Because you married that girl because you found her beautiful. And what's interesting is over time, whether it's a spouse or a deep friendship, over time, if we're not careful, things that we found attractive can begin to wear. And we don't find them attractive anymore. But if we're careful, if we hold things rightly, if we think about things truly that God has brought into our life, I think over time, even when we begin to see the cracks and flaws, we can actually also begin to see the beauty of it. We'd actually increase in our valuation, our appreciation, and our attraction to beautiful things. Well, I actually would tell you this morning that part of what Nehemiah can help point our hearts to is God's community, 
And God's community today, and I want to be very, very clear with you, what is God's community today? There's a universal church of saved people all over the place. Praise the Lord for that. But it's invisible and none of us can see it. The Bible is very clear. God's community today is a local assembly. It's what makes it visible. And so it's more, it takes it out of the, the ethereal essence of there's this mysterious, hidden, you can't see who's saved and who's not. You can't just look at them. They don't all dress the same, look the same. They don't have the same skin color, same light. But there's a community that God's building. And so he has kindly said, and here, here is a way that you can see it and make it visible. And if I'm completely honest with you, there are times when I look at the church, local churches, at our church, other church, local church, and all I can see is warts and scars and breaks, and I don't see a lot of beauty. Just don't. Uh, there's lots of times in my life I feel more like a wart <laughs> that makes it less beautiful. And yet God has, has so made life and constructed this world in a system so far beyond my comprehension that what he's actually intending to do is to use his community as a kind of art piece that puts his glory on display. And so even in the broken aspects and in the shattered parts of our lives, he fills them in with his glorious gold, with his love put on display, that can really make our hearts sing and make our heart rejoice, uh, even in the midst of all the brokenness. And so I, I hope that as we work through uh, what on their surface are very complex because how in the world do you think about, preach, teach, and understand these chapters uh, in this text that we can do that? And so that what we're going to do this morning uh, is I'm going to help us to understand how the rest of the book is going to work because this kind of gives me the moment today to do that. It, it, it affords me the opportunity uh, to say, well, what is really happening here in these chunks of the rest of the book that, that otherwise I wouldn't be able to give you kind of the overhead view of what's taking place? Um, and when you understand something, when you study something, you want to understand it in a big picture way and, and then also in the detail. So if all you do is spend your time looking at the bark of the tree, you'll never see the glory of the interconnectedness of the forest. But if all you ever do is spend your time looking at the forest, you'll never see the amazing vein structure of the leaf that shows how the nutrients flow. And so this is more of a plain view um, and a, a 30,000 foot view of the rest of the book that will help us to understand where we're going. And so uh, let me help us to walk through that this morning. The coming chapters are at the very core of the cultural rebuilding of Israel and of Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah has rebuilt walls, physical walls, hung gates. The temple was already rebuilt under Zerubbabel and Ezra. Uh, and so the structure, the physicality of, uh, of it is built, but the culture and the people have not been restored and rebuilt yet. And so how do we do that? That's so easy to understand right? Um, what makes your home a home? Is it the walls, the vinyl siding, the asphalt shingles? No, it's the people inside. What makes this church this church? This room with, I, I don't remember, golden hay color on the walls and, 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 and red chairs. Is that what makes us a church? No, it's you make it a church. And so we already understand that if you're going to rebuild something like this, if you're going to say, I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem, it does no good if you've built a structure, but it's like some post-apocalyptic vacant city it's the people that matter but how do you go about that well the rest of nehemiah is all about that it's all about how does that happen and what does that look like and so even when the walls are finished 
What's fascinating, you remember that the enemies of God even are stunned at the speed, 52 days, so much that they say, surely God has done this. Well, if you needed God to rebuild the physical structure, I wonder what you need to rebuild the people. Well, obviously it's going to have to be God. And so these chapters will help us to understand that. Let me, let me give it to us this way. Chapter 7 and 11 function as bookends of this restoration. Uh, we could actually call these bookends communities that sacrificially obey. And that's kind of trying to encapsulate what's, what's going to happen here. Now, even saying that, communities that sacrificially obey, because it's costly, and there's an emphasis of that in chapter 7 and 11, which we'll, we will unpack this a little bit more later in the sermon. But again, just in this flyover in the moment, it's interesting because Israel was in captivity for 70 years in Babylon before the first group started to come back to, to Israel and to rebuild Jerusalem. It's been about 100 years since the captivity that we're at this point in Nehemiah because he comes some 30, 40 years after that first return. The children of Israel, why were they sent into captivity? They went into captivity because they didn't keep their covenant with God. God said, I will be your God, you will be my people, obey me. Love me, love your neighbor, obey me. And essentially, when you look at the Mosaic law, that's what it's trying to do in the culture is to unpack with demands, this is what that looks like. This is what it looks like if you're going to be distinctly different by loving God and loving your neighbor here. And Israel broke it. And they broke it in a number of key ways. Uh, they brought in idolatry, idolatrous worship, through intermarriage. Uh, God warned them. God was not opposed to Gentiles. He want, always wanted all people to come in and be his people. But his problem was he, he cautioned them, he warned them. It was, it was against the law for someone like a Solomon to marry uh, a woman who is of a different nationality because and if she's still given to idolatry and she's worshiping these idols. Well, he broke that. And when the king broke it, everybody else was breaking it. And so suddenly Israel becomes a land that doesn't just worship Jehovah God, Yahweh, their covenant God, but they're worshiping Molech by sacrificing their children and Ashdod and, 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 and all these Baal and all these idols, and so worship just became warped and twisted. The law demanded that they take care of widows and orphans and the poor and the impoverished. And do you know what Israel said? Israel said, Israel first. This might sound very familiar to you. And they were afraid to care for widows, orphans, and strangers. They would have been afraid to fund Social Security. That's your problem. That ain't my problem. You take care of you. I take. I got me. There's a very me-centric view, and I just say that not for some political speech. I, at the end of the day, I don't really care where you're at as long as you love Jesus and vote morally. Like that's there's there's your recommendation. But just tell you that the the proneness of Israel is not something we should look down on and judgmental. They were God's people. I can't believe they did that. But it's the same that all of us have. We all have a capacity and a tendency to want to take care of who first, me. And so the law told them, no, you need to take care of widows and orphans. Leave this parts of your field uncut and provide for them and, and feed them and clothe them. And strangers come through, then do this. Don't be afraid of them. Be a place where people see God's glory and his love and they want to come to you. That's, that's who you should be. Be the speaking of light. They forsook all that. So you had idolatry. You had the failure to care for widows, orphans, and strangers. And then they violated the Sabbath. Every Sabbath they were supposed to give to worship. No, we're, not gonna, we're going to work on the Sabbath. 
Um, you have intermarriage. It, it, it just becomes a place where it's God in name only, not God's people actually humbly submitted. And so he deals with them as a community, and he sends the whole nation into captivity. Now, I want you to think about this. When I say that Israel was doing this, does that mean there was no one in Israel that was following God? Well, obviously not. Even when they go into captivity, before they go into captivity, you have the prophets that we at least know, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah loved God and are following him. But guess what? They get swept up in the consequence for the whole community. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get swept up in the consequences for everything. When you look at Israel as a community of God's people, it's complex because you have the good and the bad. You have people obeying and people not obeying. We don't know where the tipping point is. We don't know if it's like, well, did God look at it and say, well, 51% of the people are not obeying. They all go deep. We don't know. Somehow hidden in God's mind in the mystery of the divine will, God determined my nation, my people are adulterous and idolatrous. I send them away. And so good and the bad got swept up in it. But guess what? That's where the community had always worked. Because not everybody was on board and they would experience the good. Not everybody was on board and they all came out of slavery in Exodus. Not everybody was on board, but they were all blessed by David's victory over Goliath. And so in the, when you look at the nation of Israel, you have this complex reality of believers and non-believers that are part of the community because they're Jewish. And, and just, they're like this massive group and they all get punished. One of the things that always fries my bacon is when my kids come home and their whole class got in trouble because one kid was acting up. I'm like, what are they supposed to do? Like, that's not a good disciplinary method, right? My dad was in the army and that was their disciplinary method. They had one recruit, this was one guy when they were marching in boot camp, he didn't know his right hand from his left hand. So the first step was the drill instructor made him carry a brick in his right hand all the time. Well, that didn't get the job done. So he made everybody carry bricks in their right hands. My dad had no problem knowing his right hand from his left hand. But suddenly he's having to carry a brick because this dude over here doesn't have brain, enough brain cells put together to know his right hand from his left hand. So my dad wasn't involved in this, but guess what the platoon did? That night, they held the guy down with a blanket and they all beat him with the soap bars in their socks. And said, don't mess up anymore. And so it's a community-wide pressure put on him. And so it's like, we're going to punish everybody for one guy. And it's easy to get in this mindset. It's like, why are we all suffering? How can this work? And as God is dealing with this community, it feels a little bit like, man, I don't like how this community is set up. I don't like getting punished for all the wicked people in the community. Doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem just to me. I don't really like it. And guess what all of that is pointing you to do? to think this, then we need a different kind of community. This needs to be set up different. Structure this different. That would be like if at boot camp they said, take all the guys that don't know the right hand from the left hand, we'll put them all in the same platoon. They can all suffer together. But we're not going to do this. And so when we come to chapters 7 and 11, we have this lengthy list of large groups of people moving. Moving back from Babylon to Jerusalem, or to Israel, because they don't move into the city. And then a big group of people move from surrounding Jerusalem into the city. And so it's this bookend kind of mindset of restoration. People being brought back who had been pushed out as a result of their suffering. And so in between these bookends, people coming from Babylon to Israel, and people coming from Israel to Jerusalem, we have things like chapter 8, which is a restoration of the word. I can't wait to get to chapter 8, because it's about one of the things I'm most uh, happy about in my life and get excited about, and that's teaching and preaching the Bible. 
It's actually all about teaching and preaching. It's a wonderful passage. It's about the word being proclaimed in the presence of the people. They hadn't had the word. The word was not available to them. They didn't have Bibles to read. They didn't have their own scrolls to read. They'd been separated from the word for almost 100 years at this point. And so Ezra gets up and he reads the word. Thousands and thousands of people gather for this. He reads the word to them. Levites are going around the crowd and they're giving, it said, giving the sense of the word. And so I won't pre-preach that, um, but it's a wonderful helpful way for us to think about what teaching and preaching does and why it's important in your life and in my life. It's letting the Spirit do the work of God by taking His Word and explaining it to people so that their minds and their eyes are opened by, by God and His Spirit. They're able to grasp the truth and then apply it to their lives. Good preaching and good teaching does that. It helps you understand the Word and know what to do with it. That's, that's the goal. And so there's a restoration of that in the community because God's community is always a community of the word. That's what it's supposed to be about. Is what does the word say? And so that's, that's chapter 8. Chapter 9 is a restoration of repentance. Famously, in his 95 theses that he nailed to the church door there in Wittenberg, um, Luther had this whole list, 95 of them, and the very first one was about repentance. It said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That is an incredibly deep and fascinating truth. Because what he's reacting against is this concept that it's like a one and done moment. Now, Luther obviously understood when you're saved, you're converted, and it's in a moment. He got that. There's no question. But he also understood that we're not perfect, and we sin. And so every day of your life is a humble acknowledgement that before God, you are rescued only because of Jesus. And frequently, that, Im that involves confession of sin, right, and turning from it. Um, but it involves just, at minimum, this humble response before God and his word. And so we have this whole um, moment in chapter 9 where, where the people are beginning to respond to the word that they hear. Just this week I was having a conversation with someone about that idea, this idea of a believer living in repentance. It was one of those moments where I was trying to encourage this other person, but I was encouraging my own heart at the same time. Um, Proverbs 24, 16 is the passage I shared with them. It says this, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Now, I want, you to th I want you to think about that. The Bible says he's righteous even though he keeps on falling. The test of his righteousness was not does he never fall. But what does he do when he does fall? The contrast in that, in that wonderful proverb is the wicked one who stumbles in times of calamity. And the word it uses there for calamity is the, is the Hebrew word raw. It literally means wicked, evil, or no good. What makes a righteous man righteous is not that he never falls down, but the fact that he gets back up again in repentance. What the wicked do is they don't repent. There's only two ways to stop repenting. Two. There's only two. You only get two ways to stop repenting. Here's method one. Die and go to heaven. That's method one. You don't need to repent anymore. You'll be sinless. Die, go to heaven. Or method two, be wicked and stop repenting. Those are your only options. 
Because for the believer, it's a life of repentance. People who know and love God aren't sinless. They're repentant over their sin. Chapter 9 will be a right response to the word. How should I respond to the word? I should respond to the word with humble repentance. It's a restoration of repentance. And it will be made clear through just a beautiful prayer to the, as a response to God in his word. Chapter 10 then, oh, see, I even had more truth there. But we'll come to those in a moment. Chapter 10 is restoring commitment. And so I hear the word. That's a restoration. I'm restored and repenting my response to the word. But what do I do then? Well, then I move. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit to obedience. And so this is the normal path for every believer. Chapters 7 through 11 of Nehemiah are the flow of what the gospel looks like. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It's costly. It's sacrificial. It's obedience. They move from Babylon back to Israel, move from Israel into Jerusalem. Chapter, chapter 8, I'm receiving the word. God's opening my eyes to understand what the word says. So when the word says that I'm a sinner, I believe it. When the word says this is wrong, I believe it. When the word says I need Jesus, I believe it. What do I do with that? I turn from my sin. I repent of my sin. I re my response to that truth is humble acknowledgement, confession. I'm a sinner and I need King Jesus. And then chapter 10, then what do I do? And then I go and I obey. I follow. And so we have this wonderful progression. And so if you were to zoom out on a, on a macro level, the reality is Nehemiah 7 through 11 is a picture of the gospel in community terms. And so it's a wonderful passage to understand. Well, then chapter 12 is all about the walls and the worship. And so it's almost like this marriage of the building of the city physically and the building of the people spiritually. So we stand on top of the walls and uh, they rejoice and they sing and they praise God. And it's a massive praise party on top of the walls, which is really a finger in the eye of the enemies of God. Because remember what they said, if a fox ran on the walls, it would fall down. And so Nehemiah's like, let's get the whole city on the walls then. We'll prove it to you. Years ago, uh, one of my kids for a science fair project did one of those where you build with popsicle sticks bridges. And you keep putting weight on it. I don't know, this is probably no shock to you, but neighborhood kids are not typically excited about science projects. <laughs> but our neighborhood kids were really excited about that science fair project. So we're out there on the deck, and, and we've got, because um, at some point it's going to destroy, right? So you don't want popsicle sticks all over your house. At least one of the people in the marriage didn't want, wouldn't have wanted popsicle sticks. Ever. Yeah, um, glue and parts, this, this is going to be a mess. Science fair projects are messy. So we're on the deck, and we end up with a crowd of supporters, all these little neighborhood kids are, are watching as we're putting more and more weight on this bridge. Ooh, ah, so it's like, oh, this is amazing. It's this really cool thing. And there was one, man, we put so much, we had all the individual weight we could put on it and hadn't broken this thing. It was really, really cool. And so if you want to demonstrate strength, you put something under stress. You want to know how strong someone is. You see how much weight they can lift. You got to push it. And this is almost a way of saying, look what God has built. And that's this moment of worship and of praise and of glory in what God has done. It's all about the rebuilding of the wall, but acknowledging the one who really has built it. And in chapter 13, we're right back to who they were to begin with. There's this amazing moment in the movie Jaws where the sheriff is chumming and... Uh, all of a sudden, he turns around, and Jaws makes his first appearance. And it's this massive animatronic shark. Man, first time I saw Jaws, I, didn't go, I, didn't, I wouldn't swim in our backyard pool for weeks. 
And he stumbles into the boathouse and tells the crusty, salty old sea captain, we're going to need a bigger boat. In other words, it's, this is a lot bigger than what we realized. You get all the way to chapter 13. Nehemiah has gone away to Babylon for a number of years, and he returns. And, you know, I would say spoiler alert, but, you know, we've had the book of Nehemiah now for like 2,500 years. Um, they moved Tobiah into the temple while he was gone. The same guy that was trying to get him killed. Same guy, he's not, he's not Jewish. He's, he's not a convert. He has no business being in the temple complex, let alone the city. While Nehemiah's gone, they move him into the temple. Uh, and this is not a keep my enemies close moment. They think he's a close friend. They go back to intermarrying. Uh, they violate the Sabbath, and they even let merchants set up outside of the city on the Sabbath day so people could buy and sell and do trade goods. They go back to all those same sins they were doing before. And it's this devastating moment, and the book of Nehemiah ends with, honestly, feeling very sad. Nehemiah is saying, God, remember the work I've done. Why does he have to say that? Because you'd never be able to tell he'd done anything. None of the most important stuff. I mean, who cares if the walls are built but people don't love God? The truth is, repentance is more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. True repentance lasts, and it transforms your life. It's more than a mindset that says, I'm sorry, but you're not really sorry. It's, repentance is intellectual. You see what you've done is wrong. Repentance is more than intellect, though, because even the demons believe who Jesus is. Repentance is emotional. James 4 says that it's like weeping and wailing. It uses a phrase that's only the other time it's used in the New Testament is to refer to a woman whose only son had died. There is an emotional impact when you see your sinfulness. But it's more than emotion because just emotion is not enough. Eventually you will feel better. It's action. Repentance is action. You should go and sin no more. You do something different. Zacchaeus, when he realized who Jesus was, and he realized he was a sinner, he goes and he gives back all that he has stolen and repays seven times what he's stolen. But repentance is more than just action because if all it is is action, then here's your list of rules. Follow them and you're in. Repentance is all of it is a God-given spiritual reality. Paul tells Timothy, Maybe God will grant them repentance. It's God's gift to you and I to see who we are, who he is, that leads to a right response intellectually, a deep heart affection for God and a hatred of our sin, and a life that turns from our sin and follows after him. And what chapter 13 tells you is that wasn't true for the whole community. It's true for some of them, but not everybody. And so we get to the end of these chapters, and it's like, what are we going to do? Uh, a guy I was talking to a number of years ago, is he said this, one of the hardest things ever to have happen in life, to ever do, is giving birth. Clearly. I've never experienced it, seen it, I hear it, I believe it. You know what's harder than giving birth? Raising the dead. 
And this is really what Nehemiah is coming up against. And ultimately what the book of Nehemiah will point point us to. How do you raise dead people? How do you raise spiritually dead people? And so this is an overview of where we're going to head in the book of Nehemiah. And you might be looking at it and be like, well, I'm not sure that ends real well. You ever been reading a book and it's like late at night and you can't can't quit reading? Like you got to read the next verse, the next chapter. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, now I'm 48. If I, if I make the mistake of sitting up till one, laying in my bed reading, that's going to haunt me for a couple days. Like, that's not a good moment. But sometimes I'll get in a book, I'm like, oh, i got to just read the next page. What's going on? What's going on? The end of the book of Nehemiah, listen, we're, thankfully we're 2,500 years later, right? This isn't ultimately the end, but it does point our heart to some truths that should actually ultimately, I believe, encourage us this morning. And so what we can do with that understanding of what's going on is we can now look then at chapter 711, that are the bookends of these restoration and understand them maybe in a different or deeper way. And so to be honest, we have uh, chapter 7 with these 70-some verses, uh, 74 verses, 73 verses total of names and numbers. It's essentially, just so you know, is chapter 7 of Nehemiah is essentially a repeat of Ezra chapter 2. Nehemiah begins by saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to track down the genealogies. Uh, and so let me just read at least these, these first uh, lists of, of chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 1, so we see this flow in. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, so worship is structured, safety is structured, um, walls are done. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing than man than many. As I sa- and I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, While they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, some in front of their own homes. Let's keep the things safe. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses have been built. Um, And so when you think of the city, you have temple complex, which the temple has been rebuilt. You have walls. Everything else is still broken down, destroyed inside of it. So anybody that's living there, it's in these like ramshackle lean-tos, huts, um, more like tent city inside not the kind of place anybody wants to live in or dwell in with their family then my god verse 5 put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy and i found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and i found written in it and so what he does and what he's saying is i'm i'm trying to find out who the real jews are That's what's going on here. If we're going to repopulate the city, which that's the next step in rebuilding the culture and the people, is get people in the city. Let it be the functional capital of Israel, God's people. Well, we can't have all these intermarried folks come in or it's going to be the same as what we had 100 years ago. Somehow we got to make sure it's the right people. How are we going to make sure? He says, I'll find a genealogy. Because everybody that had been sent away in captivity had been living in Babylon, and they didn't intermarry over there in Babylon. And so if they came from Babylon with Ezra and Zerubbabel, then they're safe. And so what he did was he was like, well, how do I find that out? God puts it in his heart, and he finds the genealogical records of Ezra and Zerubbabel, and so that's what he uses. So that's what he repeats here. There are very slight differences, and the differences that exist between Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 have to do, frankly, with copyist errors because of numbers, vowel pointings, 
And so there's a name that's spelled a little different here. There, there's some numbers that seem different. Um, there's one point where he compresses uh, gold in with all these vats, and and but essentially he is copying down Ezra too. This is the genealogical record because I want to know who the right people are because I'm going to pick from these people who can move into Jerusalem. We're starting fresh. This is what we're going to do. Now, bookends is a helpful way because chapter 7 is all these people that came from Babylon to Israel that I can trust. Out of that group, chapter 11 are the ones that are going to be chosen to move into the city. And so that's how they work. And they can point us to a few truths that are really helpful for us, I think, this morning. First of all, obedience costs. Both chapters are examples of people leaving behind the comfortable, leaving behind what is safe, leaving the easy path behind for the sake of obeying God. Jews in Babylon were well established by this time. Remember, Nehemiah himself is incredibly wealthy. Well, how do you assemble wealth? Don't think of them as enslaved people not able to function. They had businesses, they had goods, they had belongings that they had been able to amass and develop. Uh, in Esther's day, the enemy of God's people uh, advocates us going and kill all the Jews so we can steal all their goods from them. They had been able to build homes, they had, they, they had work that they were doing, they had reestablished their community a thousand plus miles um, to the east, and they were functional. The very first, I've said this before, the very first known bank in history existed in Babylon. It was owned and run by Jewish people there. They'd established a banking system whereby people could borrow money, people could invest money, money was kept safe, they were given a return and interest all in Babylon. It was a business capitalistic structure and community they had established. So when, when they're told, hey, it's time to go back, there are a lot of people saying, I'm not going back, things are pretty good right here. Why would I do that? Why would I go to a burned out rubble of a city when I got it pretty good here? God's blessed me here. This is where it should be. The people who came back were passionate about God's name and his fame rather than their comfort. They understood they were God's people. And the land he had given them was in Israel. And, and so it's fascinating when you start thinking of all the imagery because God had called Abraham from the same region and told them to go to this place. They were going to be able to almost repeat an Abraham trek to go home, to be his people. Now there's a number of people, thousands of people that are listed here. This is a drop in the bucket for how many people were actually there. It's, it's a portion of them. But people that would come back, they would come back because obedience. And it's going to cost them, and they're okay with that. Well, chapter 11, it's very similar. And so if you go over to chapter 11, I want to read you this verse in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. So the nobles and these folks, and we were saying, well, I didn't think there was many houses. There's a few houses, and the rest of them were holed up in the temple complex. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. Now, pause there for a moment. <laughs> um, what kind of lottery is this? Understand this. This is not the kind of lottery where ten people are beaten at the door wanting to get in, 
and you're like, okay, we're going to pass out straws, and whoever gets a short one, you get to come in. Rather, it's Nehemiah saying, it's time for people to move into the city, and we need a portion of you to come in. And, they're, and, and it's like crickets chirping. Yes, Nehemiah, I'm sure there is someone. Um, I don't intend to be volundrafted today, right? And so it was more like you pass out the straws, and the guy that got a short straw, he's like, oh, somehow now i got to go home and tell my wife, we've been living outside of Jerusalem now for 30 years, got a nice house going on, kids have a yard to play in. Hey, sweetie, we're packing up everything and moving back into the rubble-filled city that's really dangerous. Because if our enemies want to kill us, that's where they're going to kill us. It's really the majority of them didn't want to move into the city. So it was one out of ten, and you can see this because in verse 2, the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in the city, in Jerusalem. It was precious few of them. So the one out of ten is more of a compulsion than, than eliminating the nine out of ten. What a picture of salvation. People are not clamoring to get to Jesus, are they? Now, let's be clear. They're clamoring for a Jesus who gives them all kinds of things. Who heals relationships, heals physical, heals finances, makes my life better. If Jesus is a seasoning, I can rub on my life so when I, when I go through life, I, it's better. It tastes better that I'm all about Jesus. But if Jesus is one who says, you're a sinner and you're dying, you need me. I've given my life for you, for your sins. Turn from your sin, believe in me, and follow me. I don't know if I want that Jesus. Well, maybe. We'll give Jesus a try. Following you, maybe that'll still kick in some nice bennies. But I'm pretty sure that Jesus wears thin. And so you have these people, they're like, I, I don't think I want to be the one. Obedience costs. And so we have these bookend moments of people in Babylon, it's going to cost them to obey. People in Israel, it's going to cost them to obey. Obedience always costs. But get this then, God's community, a true community of God's people, will always be people who are sacrificially obedient to Jesus. Always. A true community. Not name only. Not by some head nod, but a true community. God's true community will always be be made up of people who will sacrificially obey. It's going to cost you, but you're going to do it. When I think about following Christ, I'm not thinking what's convenient, what's safe, what I like to do. I'm thinking what does Christ call me to do, and that's what I'm going to do no matter what it costs me. Um, as Thomas, who gets so much bad rap, earlier in the Gospels when Jesus is saying, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and they're terrified because they're going to kill you there, and they were right. They were going to kill Jesus there. It's Thomas who said, well, let's go with him and die. Playing a game at my uh, in-law's house at Easter. It's a game called Imagine If. I don't know if you've ever played it, but the way it goes, you put somebody's name from the game in it. So it's imagine if Steve was this. What would he want? This was a pretty dark and morbid question that came up with my name. <clears throat> imagine if Steve were going to die, how would he want to die? And I told them, I said, you know, I'd want to die um, peacefully in my sleep like my grandpa. Not screaming in terror like the other people in the car he was driving. Um, thank you, Brenda. You got it first. I appreciate that. 
No, but it was this list, and one of them was like quietly, one of them was like in war. Everybody, like everybody, they all got points. They all voted peacefully in my sleep. I'll be honest with you, I don't necessarily want to go that way. If that was my option, that or dying in war, I'd rather die in war. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And my perspective, honestly, since I was a kid, has always been this. I'd rather give my life dying for something than fading away. Now, I don't even know if that's a healthy perspective. I don't know. We'll go ask some psychologists at some point. But my point was this. I want to do something with my life. That was, that was my only point. I want to do something. I want to be, and I think you can die peacefully when you don't sleep having done something. Be very clear. But my point is like, because like anything worth doing in this life costs you. Right? Well, guess what? Following Jesus and being a part of a broken community costs you. It does. But a true community will always be made up of people who sacrificially obey for Christ. Secondarily, holiness matters most. We have this interesting set of verses again in chapter 7. If you go back there, way down in verses 63 through 65, says this. Also of the priests, now he's giving more names here, but, but listen to what he says here. The sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. There's so much there. You're like, what is going on here? So it's a group of guys that as, when they looked at Ezra, when Nehemiah looked at the genealogies from Ezra, they had all these people, they had come from Babylon. And then there was these other guys lined up who also wanted to serve in the temple. They wanted to serve. They wanted to be a part of it. Their names were not in the genealogy. And they're like, but we want to serve. We believe. We buy in. And Nehemiah's like, yeah, but I can't really have a confidence. There hasn't been intermarriage. So I don't think we can have you do that. But please, Nehemiah, I don't think we can do that. You know, this is what we'll do. Once we have a priest, they had this thing called Umum and Thummim. Like sometimes they were like, we don't know what God's will is. And so the best we can figure it out, to be honest with you, from the law, is they had two rocks and a bag. They trusted God. And they were like, God, who, if it's right, then let it be one rock. If it's wrong, let it be the other rock. And they pull the rock out. And God would communicate through them. There's at least one example in the Old Testament. That's what they do. God controls the casting of the lots. They didn't have this extensive word to rely on. They didn't, it's, but they have the law, so what do we do? And so what they're saying here is no matter how much you want to serve, no matter what you want to do, what matters most to us, what matters running away to us is not getting more people on the list. What matters most to us is the holiness of God. What he says, that's what we're going to do, even if it costs us. Because a true community of God's people will place a high value on holiness and truth and love. They're valuing something higher than just people that want to be apart. They're valuing something higher than just the numbers that it will get them. They're valuing something higher more than just convenience. There's so many ways that that truth can, can work itself out in life and in the life of God's community. What will we value most? Truth, righteousness in a loving way? Or how we look or how we're perceived 
or how we're thought of by anybody other than God. We must function for an audience of one. In that moment, Nehemiah is only going to function for an audience of one. This is not a statement against these people. Nehemiah, is, it, it's actually him saying, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm not going to act when I don't know. I'm not trying to ostracize you, but I can't functionally do that because I value what God would want from me more and he hasn't chosen to reveal that. Maybe he'll reveal that. And if he does, then we'll, we'll praise God, we'll press forward. But until he does that, I'm not going to move till I know that's what God wants me to do. Isn't that what we actually want? I'm going to do it when I know that's what God wants me to do. And I'm not going to do it before. That's being ruled by God, not by culture, not by convenience, not by comfort. A true community of God's people will place a high value on holiness and truth and love. And then thirdly, there's an argument here from a lesser to the greater. We can learn from these bookends because as substantial as it was, as significant as it was, as amazing as it was to rebuild 42 and a half miles of 40 foot high, 8 foot deep walls as astounding as in 52 days. That's miraculous. That's unbelievable. That's clearly God's hand. His enemies are like, well, what do we even say? Clearly God did this. This is amazing. That is actually the lesser. What is most profound, what is, what is harder is raising these dead souls to believe and follow. It's an argument from lesser. To the greater. If the lesser is true, then the greater has to be true. Listen, if one bite of steak from Outback or Ruth's Chris or Longhorn tastes good, then the whole steak's going to taste You've never taken one bite of a wonderful, delicious steak and said, nah, I just don't know how the rest is going to go down now. There's a place over uh, near, um, now I'm trying to think of what's a good store next to it, Dick's Sporting Goods, probably the closest in that stream as well, called British Bulldog. It's made like an English pub. I've had one thing there, burgers. These burgers are amazing. If you haven't had a British Bulldog pub burger, you're not living. Higher ground up in Chapin, pretty good. Nothing compared to British Royal Ro Red Robin, delicious. Nothing. They, they, they're, they're, no, they're gone. You're like, I don't know if I'm going to sit in a pub elsewhere. I don't care. Get it to go. They've got one that's called the Tower of London. I don't know what they put on that thing, but I can't eat it all. I'm taking that thing in half and taking it home. It's amazing. I've never taken a bite of a British Bulldog burger and thought, I don't know. I don't even want the rest of that. That's not very tasty. You say that, you're crazy. You need medication. The lesser to the greater. That's a, you like a fresh strawberry from Cease Farms? I do too. Pack that puppy in an old school Shoney strawberry pie. Now you're living. Lesser to the greater. God argues this way. You think I don't love you? Come on, people. Don't you see how I care about the sparrows? If I care about sparrows, surely I care about you. Yesterday we had this wonderful moment. We're walking, working as a family in our garage, about to shut everything down for the night. We hear chirp, 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 chirp. We found a little fledgling bird. I don't know what kind of bird it was. I'm not a bird guy. It was a little fledgling bird. It's cute. It's adorable. It's like chirping its little lungs out. We don't know what to do with it, so I'm Googling. Google, they answer to everything. Find out it's a fledgling. Not a nestling, but a fledgling. You're not getting the whole education this morning, but what are we going to do? So, of course, my 70-year-old science boy, he takes the stick, gets the bird on it, super careful. He's, like, driven with empathy, takes the bird carefully. We did exactly what the Google said to do, put it on a bush safely. The thing quit chirping the whole time it was there. We cared for this bird. If our family, that we don't even own a pet, we can't keep fish alive. 
if we cared for a little bird, don't you think we'd care for each other? And so it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God can build walls, don't you think he can build a community? A true community of God's people will leave behind comfort for commitment to God, will leave safety for security and obedience, and will leave convenience for truth. That's what 7 and 11 are doing. They are arguing from the lesser to the greater, the building of the city to building of community. I've got three more truths for you. We're all done. So what does a true gospel community look like? There's so many ways I could answer that. But I think there's three that our text points to that are most helpful for us. Number one, it points to the fact that we're not alone. Not a lot of people came from Babylon back to Israel. Comparatively, not a lot of people. Not a lot of people moved from Israel into Jerusalem, comparatively. But there was enough that you're not alone. Part of the community of God's people is intended to help us realize we're not alone. You have this wonderful moment in Ephesians 1, making known to us the mystery of his will. And it's that word mystery that's, that's so great in that passage. Because what he's saying is this is a truth that has always existed, but we didn't know it till it got revealed. Mystery is a truth hitherto concealed, but now revealed. Thank you, Dr. Sam Fowler, Systematic One. That's what it is. It's a spiritual reality we didn't see yet, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Unite all things in him. Do you know what he's pointing back to? He's pointing back to Babel. What is actually going to unite people? When people were united without God, apart from God, Tower of Babel, they said, let's build the tower so people will look at and remember us. And so God said, then you can't be united anymore. And then you have this amazing moment on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, where Peter gets up and he begins preaching, and he starts listing all these different nationalities, and they all hear it in their own tongue. Do you know what the church is supposed to be? And I'm not saying it does a good job at it. But what it's supposed to be is a healing of the fracture of Babel. It's gold putting the pot back together. That's glorious. It makes it art. When you are in part of God's community, it should be a reminder to you, you are not alone. I don't know about you. I, you know what? I actually do know about you. You're just like me. Because we're all human. We're all born into this world looking to be loved. Every one of us in this room. Suspend whatever part of you thinks you're the only one that lives with insecurities and fears. Suspend that because it's not true. You and I are broken, hurting people, desperately looking for love, and we don't want to go through life alone. And so when I say alone, I'm not talking about marriage, I'm not talking about kids. I'm not talking about besties. I'm not talking about neighbors. I'm not talking about supervisors or employees. I'm talking about a community where we can be all of who we are safe in the loving embrace of the truth of Christ. It's his attention to heal the fractures through that kind of community. I don't think frequently the church does a good job of that. I think it does a deplorable job of that but we must be committed to that course of God's intent and keep striving towards it. 
I think secondarily, we are bound in obedience. Community brings healthy pressure of obedience so that like the dominoes fall. And if you've ever played with dominoes, you build up a whole string of them, you knock one down. If you have one spaced wrong, you know exactly where the problem was. Part of the structure of a community with accountability is you start to stick out if you don't obey God's word. And we all struggle in various ways, but if you're just going to be resistant to truth, just wholly resistant to truth, not going to, it starts to stick out. Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider one another, how to stir up one another to love and good works. It's a recognition that we can get lazy there. It's a recognition that we will get lazy there. And it's a recognition that we need other believers who understand that laziness and that proneness to laziness to keep pushing us, encouraging us, keeping us accountable to what? Love and good works. To love God and others and do good out of that. Give one another opportunities for it, but put it in front of us and provoke one another to be invested in it. This is what's happening in Israel. It was very obvious. Can you imagine if you had a community, even a large community, and all of a sudden 45,000 people are gone? You would notice. It's not a lot. It's not the majority, but you'd notice. Would you notice 10% gone of all the people living around? Yeah, so-and-so used to live next door. They're not there anymore. Yeah, do you ever drive through your neighborhood, notice this house for sale, that house for sale, this lot's been... You would notice. It would stick out to you. It starts to stick out to you, and that's actually part of the healthy nature of a community. We are bound together in obedience. We are all committed together to obey Christ. And so Hebrews 10 tells us we're all going to struggle with that. Last one, and we'll be done. We are safe. Community brings a sense of safety. They traveled together in packs, 40-some thousand of them to get there from Babylon. One out of every 10, hundreds if not thousands of people moving back into Jerusalem. The safety was there because there was safety in the numbers. Hebrews 10 tells us spiritually, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that would consume the adversaries. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about people. And this is all New Testament. This is, this is church. This is the diaspora, the, the division of the Jews that are believers and the, the Hebrews is writing to these guys. And he's saying this, take note for those who say they are part of you and then they quit being a part of you. That's the point. Because they're in spiritual trouble. Part of the pressure of the commitment of being a part of a community helps to provide spiritual safety. It just is. And that, that is a heavy power that must be wielded gently, kindly, and in love, and never as a hammer or weapon. but there's a safety in it. There's a kindness of God in it. There's a love in it. There's an accountability in the community of church that ultimately cares for those that are not able to be there. It pursues people rightly in love. Why? Because we know the evil one likes to snatch away the ones that are not apart. He does. That's one of his methods. He, Nehemiah 7 and 11 Bookends of truth that point to the rebuilding of a community. May God continue to grow and to change us as a true community to be this kind of gospel community. Father.